Drysdale has three best-selling psychological thrillers to her credit, and her latest, The Paris Affair, features Harper, an online journalist who goes to the city of love to get over a broken heart and finds herself on the trail of a murderer and the scoop of a lifetime. And as the Paris Affair's tagline suggests, she goes to Paris thinking that love can kill you. It turns out she might be right. Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series. So you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler, and on Binge Reading Today, Pip talks about the passion she shares with Harper for murder podcasts, the deep level research she does for her edgy thrillers, including wearing the same perfume as her characters, and her earlier career as an actor, musician, and songwriter. But before we get to Pip, just a reminder, Binge Reading is now on Patreon. For as little as a cup of coffee a month, you can support the show and get exclusive bonus content about books you won't want to put down and the authors who write them. Check out Binge Reading on Patreon on our website, thejoysofbingereading.com. That's also where you'll find links to Pip's books and online media. But now, here's Pip. Hello there, Pip, and welcome to the show. It's so good to have you with us. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Look, The Paris Affair is your third psychological thriller. The two previous books have both been bestsellers. And in this one, your protagonist, Harper, goes off to Paris to put a broken love affair behind her. She's going to start a new life as an arts journalist, but she very quickly finds herself on the trail of a murderer and the scoop of a lifetime. Tell us how you came to start writing this particular story. Well, I really wanted to write a book about a woman who didn't believe in love and didn't want love, but moved to the city of love. And I really wanted to incorporate the true crime podcast into it because I feel like so many of us listen to those and there are deep reasons for that. And I really wanted to show a side of Paris that wasn't necessarily always shown in film and TV. So I take a very postcard perfect part of Paris, Saint-Germain-de-Prés, and then I sort of flip it on its head. Now, we want to talk about the book without giving away any spoilers, and there are so many great plot twists that we don't want to spoil any of it for anybody. So let's start by examining Harper's state of mind at the book opening. She's There's this hilarious opening scene where she's exercising her superpower of getting rid of a man in three minutes. Tell us how she's perfected that that particular superpower. Well, Harper has learned the hard way that it's not always the best move to bruise a guy's ego. And so she has found a way to get rid of them by making them think that it's their idea. So she acts super thingy and then they don't want to see her anymore and she gets what she wants which is never to see them again but they think that it was their idea so they don't get angry yeah she kind of gets what she wants because she has decided in her head that she doesn't want a relationship but there is a wee pang there's a little struggle going on inside her when she does it as well isn't there 
Oh, of course, because she's not like a psychopath. She doesn't want to harm anyone. She She's quite frightened of love. Like I think deep down, Harper is terrified of love and what it could do to her, mainly because her mother has gone through a string of relationships as she was growing up and she's seen her mother fall apart the whole time. And she's always been the one there picking up the pieces. And part because she's just come out of an eight-year relationship with someone who totally used her and that broke her down. So to her, love is a very terrifying prospect. So she's just doing everything she can to keep herself safe, really. Yeah, yeah. So she's doing cultural and art journalism, but she has this hankering to get into the hard news end, which is why she's drawn to try and solve this murder. But when you're talking about the art scene in Paris, it's very convincing and in- intriguing. You sound very knowledgeable about art, and it did occur to me as I was reading the book that you had a deep personal interest in this area as well. Yeah, I definitely do. I have wandered through many, many galleries in different cities and learnt about lots of artists. And I also um, studied quite a lot of fine art history at university. So I did have a grounding in it. But when I was writing Harper, I was really keen to keep her knowledge and her interests quite mainstream in terms of art because I wanted the reader to be able to visualise what work I was talking about. I wanted them to potentially already know the works. I didn't want to pick these really obscure, out-of-the-way works that nobody would be able to latch onto because it's not really about art. Yeah, yeah. That brings us to the next obvious question, probably one that authors generally don't really like to, to answer but how much of you is there in Harper and I mention it because you've already referred to your passion to the passion that Harper has for murder podcasts and it's very obvious as soon as you go on your website that's a passion you share as well you're mad about murder podcasts now tell us about that fascination I'm fascinated by murder podcasts because they help me keep safe I know that sounds backward because it sounds like people would only really care about true crime if they want to see what happens to other people. But a lot of the time you pick up tips and tricks in it about what not to do, you know, what people might do to lure you into a bad situation or what kind of red flags you can look for. And I think on a deep level, that's why I'm so interested in it because I watch a lot of true crime documentaries as well. And actually, it's quite interesting because I was on Instagram the other day and I saw this post about a little girl over in the States who, through watching CSI, knew to leave like she was playing with this blue slime and she knew to leave some on the guy who attacked her. So she was leaving evidence. And I thought, you see, that's the kind of thing that we pick up from these shows and from podcasts. So, yeah. Yeah. I think I don't listen to them because I probably don't want to be aware of the potential dangers out there. But, you know, it's, I'll get yeah. I'll get turned into one of those scary people who's always jumping at corners. But, yeah, it's two different ways of looking at it, isn't it? Oh, my God, totally. And it depends also what kind of situations you're in. You know, if you're living in a pretty safe little suburban area, which I am right now, you don't feel the same need to be listening to them. But whenever I'm living in big cities, you're kind of a little bit more vigilant. You're a little bit more hyper aware of your surroundings because you feel like you're in more danger. It's easier for people to be anonymous and go unnoticed. And that's why it works so well for my books. But it's a bit nerve wracking. (laughs) Look, the book before this one, seeing as we're talking about safety and trust a bit, The Strangers We Know, 
was, as we've mentioned, another bestseller. It's being made for TV, I believe, at, at the present time. And it deals with a wife who thinks she's got a perfect marriage until she finds a dating app on her husband's phone. And this raises a whole lot of questions and doubts in her life. Your characters seem to generally live in a world where trust in others is constantly challenged. Would that be a fair comment? It probably would be quite fair, but that is also part of the psychological thriller genre. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's necessary. That's part of what makes a psychological thriller a psychological thriller. However, I will say that I do think that most people have something that they're hiding, probably not quite as sinister as the things in my books, but it's quite interesting because what people hide from others says a lot about them. It's not even always bad things they hide from others. Sometimes they hide good things from others, you know, and I find that a very interesting part of human nature. Your first book, The Sunday Girl, and I want to draw all of these into the podcast because yeah. people could well be interested in the, in the plot lines of these other books as well also a bestseller, yeah. introduces Taylor, a woman left broken by, quotes, the, the, the um, blurb says, a bad, bad man, and she decides to seek revenge. I guess partly it's justifiable when he's a really bad man. Do you sense this has resonance for a lot of women today? I've noticed there's quite a bit of revenge uh, literature around at the moment. Do you think a lot of readers out there do feel as if they've been done wrong? Probably, because they probably have. I mean, we live in a world that doesn't um, really protect women and children the way that it should. And the bad, bad man in The Sunday Girl is actually, she's coming out of a very abusive relationship and he has uploaded a sex tape of her to the internet. So it's not your average, he hurt my feelings, I'm going to go burn his house down mm, situation. Mm, mm. He truly is quite awful and she snaps. So it's kind of working around the premise of how far can you push someone who was essentially good when they got into the relationship? Because really good people get into abusive relationships and then it's so slow um, and methodical that by the time they're deep in the thick of it, they can't really figure out how to get out. It probably does resonate with women. And that makes me sad because I would love it if it didn't. You know, I'd love it if we lived in a world where women weren't under those kind of, where we weren't controlled that way or harmed that way, or we didn't snap. We didn't get to the point where we wanted revenge, you know, it would be great. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I, I did look up even the um, definition of psychological thriller because I was trying to think, what set them apart. What I discovered was that they say that the psychological thriller, rather than being based on simply action and, and a tightly woven storyline, although you've got that very definitely, but they're centred around the characters, their thoughts, their emotions and their behaviour. And it's not what the characters are doing that's so disturbing, it's their reasons for doing so. Do you think about that in a very conscious way when you're writing the books? Somewhat. However, I would add to that definition. And because when I really think about the difference between them, I'd say that, and this is just my personal version of it, I would say that a thriller usually centres around someone in law enforcement or some kind of authority role that's investigating a killer or someone who's doing very bad things, like a serial killer, and so they're on the trail and then they think it's one person and then it's another person and it follows that. And there's usually a dead body very early on yeah. in the piece. 
where like usually on the first page or the first 10 pages, right? Whereas a psychological thriller, the dead body can come quite late in the piece because you are setting up usually, and this is like, like I said, this is just my personal reading of it. You're setting up real people. And when I say real, I mean, they're not in a position of authority. They're just regular people living their lives and you are setting them up to have this quite thrillery experience. And the things that they have at their disposal are often not as not as easy to help them as if they were a police officer. So they don't have databases at their fingertips. They've got social media, which is why I use social media so extensively in my books. They've got their wits. In Taylor's case, she had the art of war. That's kind of how I define the difference between them. So when I say I write a psychological thriller, I do have tightly woven stories and plots, like you said, but... It's just in a, it comes at it from a different angle. Yeah, yeah. And they generally don't have weapons either. They, they haven't got a holster there that they can draw on either, do they? No, and if they do have weapons, then they tend to be different types of weapons, mm. you know. Like the, the women in my box tend to find ways to use other things as weapons because that's what you do, you know. If you're being attacked, you grab for something, yeah. right? Yeah, that's right. And your protagonists, I found it fascinating really when I was thinking about it, they all have gender-neutral names, which I must say yeah. I really like, Taylor, yeah. Charlie and Harper. Yeah. I presume this was a very definite decision on your part. Why do you like these gender-neutral names? Well, for a couple of reasons. Firstly, I just like them. Mm. And if I'm going to live with a character for a good year or so, I want to really love the name and love the character in her own way. And so I name them the way people name their kids, which they give them names that they love, right, or mean something to them. But also all the characters in my books or the female characters, they're very feminine. However, they are stepping outside the lines of what we're told women have to do. So in their own ways, they're all kind of like giving the middle finger to the patriarchy. And so I try to give them names that have some level of edge to them. And gender neutral names tend to be those names for me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That leads us on quite nicely, actually, to... That feeling, the underlying feeling that they have the most amazingly open worlds before them with a huge number of choices, and yet they still find it difficult to find happiness. And I wondered if you thought this does reflect our female population at this stage in our history, whether the millennials Um, and the ones coming up behind them are still finding it quite hard to realise themselves as satisfied human beings? Um, In some ways, yes. I do think having too much choice can almost be crippling. I have found that myself. But I also think given... I also think that human nature at its core is always going to be a bit unhappy. We're always going to be looking for other things. There are so many books written about how to be happy and not just women, for men too, you know. So I do think it's human nature to struggle to hold on to happiness on a day-to-day basis, whereas meaning is a little bit more, uh, you can hang your hat on meaning, you know, that will stick around. But happiness is a bit more fleeting. However, I think if you're going to compare the two, if you're going to say, okay, so either you get to be a 1950s housewife and you're stuck in your house and you have to down a ton of Valium and Quaaludes or whatever they were called so you don't die of boredom or you have to have 
current problems and too much choice, I'm definitely choosing the second one. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm with you on that, I must say. Yeah. Okay. Look, so, yes and no. <laughs> Look, I understand you do a lot of research on your characters and I was fascinated to see somewhere that amongst that research is things like experiencing what they might experience, even to the extent of wearing their perfume. And I wondered if you could tell us about researching My Paris Affair. How did, how did you go about that? Okay, well, she actually does have a perfume. It's called Fleur Narcotic and I'm wearing it right now just to get me into Harper's Brain. Um, <laughs> And when I was there, I lived in a flat because I went over to Paris to do quite a lot of research, which is pretty important for my writing process. So I spent time living in her flat and pretty much everything I describe is a real flat and including the stairs and the door codes and everything that I that really struck me while I was there found its way into the book. And I traveled my way to her work and I figured out what building I thought she should work in and so everything's very real for me. And I find that really helps my process in terms of thinking about things that could happen because I don't have to stick a door somewhere. I know there's a door there. I know someone could walk through that door, you know? Yeah. So for me, it makes it very real and visceral, which I think translates well to the, to the page, which is why I always try to base my books in places that I have in my bones. Like I've actually lived there for a period of time as opposed to places I've been for a week. You know, yeah. I find that for me, it helps me create a more realistic picture of that place. So for example, Paris, I, it's not even this one, three month period. I've spent three or four months there a couple of times over the last, um, I'd say 10 years and, and always staying in the same area. So when I was writing about it, the version that you got of Paris was not necessarily the postcard perfect version. You got... The things that you pick up when you've been there for a while, you, when you start seeing the cracks, and that's the most beautiful stuff to me, you know? Yeah. So yes. yeah. I do think you also try to make it like with scenery. I always try to kind of make it fit with the character and the fat character's way of viewing the world. So, for example, Harper is quite cynical. So to have her view Paris as this really wondrous miracle would not fit, right? If she was a different character, super optimistic and upbeat, she could have seen it that way, but you have to make it fit with the character. Yes, yes. How is that process going to be affected by the pandemic that we're currently seeing in the world? Have, has your latest work or work that you might want to be working on been stymied by not being able to go somewhere to research it? Yeah, I'm not thrilled about that. <laughs> to be it's not my favourite, but like I get that there are bigger problems in the world, but <laughs> on a selfish level, I'm not loving it. But because um, it really is quite crippling. However, that said, I am basing my next one in New York and I have lived in New York. So I do have a starting point. It's just that it's not very recent. And so obviously New York has changed and I'll need to be there in order to get that information. So I'm spending a lot of time in YouTube and Instagram and asking questions of my friends who still live there. And I'm really, really hoping that they allow us to get vaccinated and go and do some kind of business trip so that I can just gather the information I need to, you know, because yeah, I have a deadline. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yes, that's, I can imagine. And I saw yeah. somewhere that you regarded London almost as your second home. So you've obviously spent a lot of time there too. Yes, I have spent a lot of time there. And I think it's really interesting as well because you can read lots of different versions of cities in books. And 
what that really says to me is everyone experiences the city slightly differently, you know? Like it depends where you're living, who you're hanging out with. Yeah. My experience mm-hmm. of London will be so different to somebody else's experience of London. My experience of New York will be so different to somebody else's. And that's always really wild to me because there's so many different stories going on constantly, like right next to each other, you know? Yeah, 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 that's right. But moving away perhaps from the specific books to turning to your wider career, because you've had a fascinating career. You've had a varied career as a musician, an actor, and a singer working in indie films in New York. You've written songs and you've recorded four albums. I'm so impressed. Tell us about those early years. Oh, let me think. What do you want to know? What sort it of albums quite... were they? What sort of music did you like to sing? Oh, I wrote like I wrote like folk pop. So I was I was right at the tail end of C- of like CDs going out. So I could still sell CDs at shows, which was wonderful. I mean, like there was there was streaming. I had all my stuff streaming as well, but people still bought CDs, right? Yeah. So that was good. And I used to just play at little cafes and at festivals, and that was kind of my dream back then. And I think it's very interesting how your dreams shift and change like it's a bit like when I was acting my dreams were always around doing little kind of indie guerrilla films they I don't know why I never had great aspirations with those two things I just didn't it was more the experience of creating the art that I was fascinated by and it's still like that with with books but I think you get to a point where you actually realize that you're going to need a career and you need to make this happen and that's what happened with books So how did that transition occur? And how similar is writing a book to writing songs? Very different. With a song, you, well, let me think, how can I explain this? With a song, you have essentially three verses, a chorus and a bridge. And you've got a lot to put across in that. It's not really that it's not that big a story. You don't have a ton of side plots going on. You don't have a lot of mental acrobatics going on. You're relying upon the melody and to kind of pull it all together. And you can put a ton of aphorisms, which I didn't even know what an aphorism was until I started being a novelist and was told by an early agent that I submitted to that there were too many in my work and I googled it <laughs> and I was like, well, that's because I've spent too much time writing choruses, right? Because an aphorism. <laughs> I hope I'm actually saying it right. I think it's aphorism. Yes, but, yes, yes. Right. It's basically a little saying, you know, and that's, you know, you have those epiphany moments and those little sayings and songs. So it took a while for me to kind of work that out of my writing. But I feel like both other creative aspects to me have definitely helped. Like being able to get into someone's head in order to play them is a hugely valuable asset when it comes to writing a novel because you can really get to the core of why something is so high stakes for a character. So it's not just what they're doing. You can really understand why, even though it might look like not a big deal to someone on the outside, this is do or die to them. Like for Harper, she, to someone else, they're like, oh, she just doesn't like commitment. But I can really get in her head and understand, no, to her, Love is a very dangerous thing and it can kill her. You know, like it's a big deal for her, right? And if I hadn't spent that time acting, maybe I couldn't get to that. I don't know. Maybe I could. Who knows? And the same for writing songs. I do feel like all of it works in because there is a rhythm to a sentence when you're writing it. So hopefully it all helps. Yeah. And it made me who I am. So, you know. 
And so when you decided that you were going to write books, how did that, how did that come about? And why did you decide it would be the psychological thriller genre? Were you always certain that's where you wanted to go? It's just what came naturally to yeah. me. Yeah. Like I write the kind of books that I write. I don't really think of them in terms of a genre. Like they are a genre, but I think of them more... They're stories and they're stories that I find interesting, you know, women who are trying to go their own way in this modern world and bad things happen and they have to deal with them. And how do they do that? And how do they get themselves out of problems? And what do they truly want? And why is that a problem in the society we live in? That's all the stuff that I'm dealing with, but it fits within um, the psychological thriller umbrella. Yeah, yeah. Is there a quality or a decision that you've made that has led to your biggest breakthrough as a creative person? It might not necessarily be as a writer, but is there some turning point or breakthrough that you can see in your creative process over this period? Hmm. I don't know. I actually just think you have to stick with it. Yeah. I think you're a creative and you keep doing the work. and you keep doing the work and you keep doing the work, you eventually something breaks and you find your place in the world. And it's pretty obvious when you do, you know, I think we try and we try and we try in lots of different ways. And then sometimes the stars line up and other people agree with us that this is the role we should be playing in the world. And it feels right, you know, and that's what being a novelist is for me. Yeah. Yeah. Looking back over your professional life at this stage, is there anything that you would change with the benefit of hindsight? For my ego's sake? Oh, my God, tons. Okay. But from my creative standpoint and from me as a human being, none of it. Because I think one of the benefits of being a novelist is you learn to see a plot from the beginning to the end and how each thing rolls onto the next. And so if I was to alter any aspect of my past, there then I would be a different person now and I'd be at a, at a different spot. And I'm kind of cool with where I am. Yeah. And the other thing is I actually think we learn a lot from missteps and mistakes and things we kind of wish we'd done differently. I think that that's how you grow and learn. And that stuff is gold when it comes to writing. If you live this blessed life where you never step out of line and you never do things that you kind of look back and go, oh God, then what the hell are you going to write a novel about? You'll never be able to identify with, like you'll never write characters that other people can identify with because we all have those things, right? You need to understand it. So no, I'd say no, even though I kind of like to. (laughs) Look, um, this is the joys of binge reading. So, And we're coming to the end of our time together. So just looking at binge reading or reading generally, passionate reading, bookaholic reading, what do you like to read and who would you like to recommend to the listeners? Hmm. I read quite widely. When I am writing a novel, I'll read things that I need to know for that novel. So I'll read things to get me into either, at the moment I'm reading things that are based in New York because I'm trying to get myself in that brain space. So but when I was writing The Paris Affair, I wrote, I read something called Alex, which I would highly recommend. It's a thriller. It's not a psychological thriller. It's a straight thriller, but it's really, really twisty and really, really good. And it's by a French author. So I think he's written a couple of others too, and I can't remember his name. 
sorry, but it's Alex. The other one I've read recently that I really loved was Luster. Let me think. I love anything Robin Harding writes. I find that I can read her books in literally half a day because they're just so incredibly bingeable. And for me, I think if a book is bingeable and easy to read and you want to keep turning the page, it's well-written, like really well-written because that kind of writing is really hard to do. I'm trying to think. I love The Comeback. That's by Alberman, I think. I'd say those. Yes. And Alex is spelled A-L-I-X. No, A-L-E-X. E-X. Oh, okay, great. Yes. No, I am man and it's a French guy and he's written a couple, but Alex is the one that I read and I found it very clever and twisty and pretty gory though. I mean, I'm going to warn you, I'm not a big fan of gore. I prefer implied gore than real, mm. but it genuinely was so good. But it is an English translation. Oh, my God, totally. Do you actually, do you speak French or if you've spent quite a bit of time in I Paris? Do. I do, but when I go to Paris, literally I have no opportunities to use my French. <laughs> they all speak English to me and they speak it far better than I do, uh, than I speak French. But um, yes, I do. However, I'm super, I struggle with confidence in my French skills, so I avoid it wherever I can. But, yes, I do. I actually studied it at uni, so. Yeah, right. Look, we are starting to run out of time. So circling around, looking back down the tunnel of time and and considering where you are now, is there you're just very happy with where you're working at and what are you working on next? Well, the next book is based in New York and that's pretty much all I can tell you. But yeah, psychological thriller, female protagonist based in New York. And when's that one due out? End of 2022 end of 2022 oh so that's you've got a nice little bit of breathing space there I know it doesn't feel like it though hey (laughs) no I suppose not you want to get to New York before then don't you yeah I really need to get to New York at the end of the year or maybe early next year but I'm really fingers crossed hoping something happens and I can but like that is a lot more time than I usually have it's usually about a year from first sentence to publication so it will be great to have a little bit of extra time but I think it's necessary given the current state of events you know yeah yeah I think you've got a good chance of being able to get there by the end of this year or early next I really need to like so hopefully yes yeah so you're in western Australia aren't you yes and how's the vaccine rollout happening there is it I don't know. Hey, I don't hear an awful lot about mm. it. My mom got one from the GP, but I haven't been offered one, obviously. Yeah. I'm just like holding thumbs, man, for Pfizer. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Get all the Pfizer's here. <laughs> now, Pip, I, I'm sure you do like to hear from your readers. Where can they find you online? Pip Drysdale. So that is Instagram and also Facebook. So, and also keep in mind, Harper actually has her own Instagram account, which I have a ton of photos for and have been very bad about uploading in the last week. But generally, I upload pictures of Paris to it every couple of days. And that is new.girlinparis. So, it's the same Instagram account as she has in the book. Oh, fantastic. I didn't know that. So, that's wonderful. We'll put all of those links into the show notes for this episode. So, we'll make sure right. that we include them there. That's an awful lot of work to do that, but that's great. I yeah, mean, it's you really know, you fun. doing it, the Harper one. It's double yeah. the work you have to do, doesn't it? I know. (laughs) You do what you do, right? (laughs) That's great. Look, it's been wonderful talking. Thank you so much and all the very best with getting to New York. Okay, thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. 
And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.